I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. We're in the middle of a three-part series on the King James Bible and why we, as the Living Faith Bible Institute and Living Faith Fellowship, ascribed it as the infallible and preserved Word of God. In the previous two episodes, we briefly framed the internal and external evidences to support our position. Now this week, we're going to take time to discuss how Christian doctrine is impacted by the Bible that one chooses. Is teaching and practical Christian living impacted by which translation that you're using? And so with that, Pastor Alan Shelby, good to have you, man. Yeah, amen. Praise the Lord. Let's just go right for it. Uh, so many English translations of the Bible have substantial revisions since their inception. For instance, the English Standard Version, which has seven different editions since 2007, uh, has ha- they've changed over 52 words in one of these revisions. And so as we look across the landscape of all of these different English Bibles that we have, 200 plus, certainly way more than that. One of the things that we see is that they kind of leave the door open for continual revision. And so can a person, any person, any average individual in any church who loves the Lord, who wants to follow him with their life, uh, can a person who uses an evolving Bible actually believe that they have the inspired word of God. So they kind of leave the door open. Wouldn't you? If you you were the devil, (laughs) and if the idea was they need the certainty of the words of truth, God's trying to give them the certainty of the words of truth, that's what they need to live off of. Mm -hmm. Well, no, you'd kind of always be, yea, hath God said, and particularly Mm -hmm. where you could make money out of it. Now, part of the, I think part of the proof of that underlying mindset is that when they made the the last changes they made in the ESV, their publishers said, this is it. This is finished. This is final. This is the Word of God. It will never need to be changed again. And they got so much pushback that they backtracked. So they they reneged on that and said, oh, you know, no, I guess we'll have to keep doing this. Yeah. And and the pushback was coming from the scholars specifically. Specifically. The first thing that I hear a lot of times is well-intentioned, well-meaning young men and women. They go to seminary and their very curriculum, their very program of study demands that they take Greek classes and then they, they walk away suggesting that one can't actually understand the Bible for themselves unless they have studied the Greek, and even more humorous than that is studying the Hebrew. Um, and and the, that is a, a, a requisite for being able to exegete script, Scripture properly. We hold a different perspective because of the King James. Maybe you can explain that a little bit. Well, yes, and the way you framed it, you would actually think that is so. You would think that what they are saying is that you can't understand the Word of God unless you know Hebrew, unless you know Greek. Mm-hmm. In actual fact, that is the bait 
That is the hook. Because when you get into their classes and you take their Hebrew and their Greek, then what they're saying is, no, you can't know exactly what it said, even though now you know Hebrew and Greek. Mm. But you can become the final arbiter of what it says. So it's kind of a scholarly shack. Mm-hmm. Remember that book, The Shack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a shack scholarship method that, okay, I've taught you all this Greek to now let you in on the Elysian mysteries. <laughs> and now I can initiate you into the true truth. The gnosis is that even though I've taught you the Greek, you now know that you cannot know what it really says. For mm. one thing, you don't know which Greek. You don't know which variation, which variant. You've got to either go to all the scholars and make your judgment based on what all they say or practice your own textual criticism and make your own judgment. But you, but it, you, know, you can't, and, and your truth is as valid as the next student's truth as he goes through that process. Mm-hmm. And we will applaud all of you for coming up with your version of that truth. So, so it's really kind of ironic. And, and, and I think, just to sort all that nonsense out, that it is consistent with the Word of God to say that a translation of God's words can truly be Scripture uh, in a second language. Now, I think part of the proof of that is the only three references to the word translate in the Bible. So what is the nature of translating? According to the Bible itself, well, translate means to transfer from one state to another. Right. Even to transpose from one location to another, to transport. 2 Samuel 3.10, to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul to set up the throne of David. Okay. Colossians 1.13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. And then Hebrews 11.5, by faith Enoch was translated. Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So what do I gather from that inductive research mm-hmm. and data collection of Scripture itself? First, a perfect translation is consistent with the character and the integrity of God. The originals are gone, long gone. God has moved on with us. And, and right. so I think that my view of Scripture has to be tied to my view of God as to integrity, as to His power. So second, a perfect translation is consistent with the character of Scripture. In all those phases, inspiration and scripturation, transmission, preservation, down to translation. Now, how can God do that? How can he use human instrumentality and not be at the mercy of human frailty? Because he's God. Right. That is my view of God. Nothing is impossible with God. Third, a perfect translation is consistent with the evidence of history. God caused his thoughts, which are absolutely holy, 
to be recorded in words in such a way that his providence incorporated human flesh and we received a perfect and complete statement of the mind of God. Either we did or we didn't. But if we didn't, I mean, we are of all men most miserable. Mm. And this is exactly the type of exegetical argument the scholars object to because, number one, it's theological, and they don't admit theology into their scholarship. And uh, number two, not only that, but no one would use the Bible as the basis for a theory of linguistics except us. Hmm. You know, they couldn't imagine using the Bible as the basis for a theory of linguistics. So their theory, their theory of linguistics is like their theory of counseling and their theory of manuscript history and their theory of origins. It is totally from a humanistic, mm -hmm. evolutionary perspective. Mm -hmm. And, oh, since evolution always gets better and better, we are now at the top of the heap. You got people handling God's word for the sake of translation who don't even believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yes. Th that has to taint the way in which you translate. There's no way around it because it's not a faith-based position. Absolutely. And it did. So with regard, for example, to whether Jesus is virgin born, they would say, no, Isaiah was just talking about a young lady. He was not talking about a virgin. Regardless what Matthew says in clarifying it in the cross-reference, Isaiah didn't mean a virgin. Yeah. Okay, so number one, it's not a product of the operation of the Holy Spirit through believers. Just taking the ESV then as an example, okay, where did it come from? Well, it came from... Uh, the Revised Standard Version of 1952. Mm -hmm. Oh, you mean the, the Revised Standard Version made by unbelievers, right. unbelieving liberal scholars right. in, the, in, the, in the National Council of Churches. Unitar the, you mean Unitar that RSV? Unitarians were involved in right. the process, people who claimed yes. even to be atheistic. So you mean that RSV? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, but you know, we we went. That's why we went through and we changed and we cleaned up and we did this and we did that. Oh, okay, but and however, I I you know that's not exactly the same type of process. I mostly see God operating through the priesthood of believers, and and while John Wycliffe had to start with what he had, the Latin Vulgate. He was a believer, and he was believing about doing it. Mm -hmm. Not so the RSV translators. Mm -hmm. So number two, they have a faulty text to translate from. My presupposition is that the Bible's the mind of God, and that assumes that God is totally consistent with himself, both in Scripture and in history. And you just can't tell me that five, in the case of the eclectic New Testament Greek text, United Bible Society's Greek text, you cannot tell me that five unsaved, lost men who made it up as they went along mm -hmm. can give me a textual basis 
for a new translation. It does not add up, not biblically, not historically, not even rationally or logically. Mm. And number three, they have a false philosophy of translating. So King James told his translators, you make this as consonant as can be to the original Hebrew and Greek so the translators preserve the text with an accuracy, a gravity, a seriousness, a rhythm, and even where they had to add in an extra English word that was not actually there to, to complete the sense, they italicized it. Modern English Bibles are a more idiomatic, so they're not concerned with what is being translated from, but whom it is being translated for. Right. This is often referred to as the, the difference of formal equivalency versus dynamical yes. equivalency, and it actually lies at the heart of translation philosophy. Here's the bottom line. They do not want their work to be recognizable as a translation. So despite the fact that Paul says, the natural man cannot understand spiritual things of God, Modern translators say their translation should be immediately understandable to mm -hmm. modern man without the operation of preaching or the activity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's just a whole different you know, philosophy of translating. So it's a difference between two competing philosophies. And it flies in the face of how we understand education anyway, okay? Not to mention discipleship, but but who gives a third grader a science book and expects them to understand it without a teacher to help them perform experiments? Right. And and so, you know, my my 10-year-old and my 8-year-old read a King James Bible. And when they run into cultural historical differences, uh, language differences. They do what most people do when they don't understand something. They ask, what does this mean? And then they uncover what it means. We're trying to create these translations that are immediately readable and understandable to the exclusion of accuracy and pointedness yeah. that comes with the actual words of God. And I, and, and I, it's, it's kind of a cop-out, isn't it? I mean... Well, I'll tell you what the cop-out is. I knew a preacher one time who said that he was giving up a view of biblical authority residing in the King James Bible because his grandchildren would not be using a King James Bible. Mm. You're right. They won't be using a King James Bible because you are walking away from it. Right. And yes, it is you know, possible that despite you walking away, they may believe in the King James anyway. That'll be, that would be the exception to the rule. Mm -hmm. And yes, it would be possible that you would stick to the King James, and yet they might walk away from it because they have a free will. So, so yes, that theoretically possible. Right. But you're, you know, basically you're right. Yeah. The re okay, you can't say, well, I'm, I'm walking away from it because my grandchildren are not going to use it. Well, you're right. They're not going to use it if you're not. Yeah, it's self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Yeah. So if I could, um, you know, take a moment, get us into Psalm 119. Sure. To maybe to establish a mindset of some of the things that we might say on this, this particular episode. 
Because I believe that if you cannot approach your English Bible the same way that David approached his scriptures, some of which by then were centuries old, Mm -hmm. well, then you don't have a book worthy of belief and you don't have a God worthy of worship. Psalm 119 verse 31, David says, or the author says, I have stuck unto thy testimonies. Mm-hmm. O Lord, put me not to shame. And, you know, shame is a big topic in therapeutic style counseling today. You getting rid of your shame. Yet they've walked away from the very thing that, that would get rid of their shame. Right. I have stuck unto thy testimonies. Um, verse 116. Psalm 119, verse 116, uphold me according unto thy word that I may live, and let me not be ashamed of my hope. Wow. How many, how many pastors do I know that used to believe, teach, or preach biblical authority in a King James Bible? And they got ashamed of that hope. And then, yes, it does come up. Psalm 119, 159, consider how I love thy precepts. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness, because I love thy precepts. Psalm 119, verse 161, princes have persecuted me without a cause. Professors, scholars, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. Mm-hmm. So every one of our viewers, listeners has a decision to make. Do you stand in awe? Okay, do you have a translation of God's word, God's word in English that you can stand in awe of? Because all of it all that it took to get it right. uh, get here to us and right. and what God did with it compared to where it came from and what it results in. The crux of this episode as I'm hoping that we can make it clear to the listener that there is a distinct difference doctrinally from the King James, what's taught in the King James uh, and what is held to in the King James versus what we find in other Bibles. Could you walk us through some examples of how doctrine is impacted between versions? But let me build a ramp to this idea of the damage to doctrine, the mm-hmm. damage it does to doctrine. Let me let me build a ramp to that. Okay. Because since I'm I'm teaching through First Corinthians right now, mm-hmm. LFBI. So mm-hmm. in chapter ten, Paul says some things I don't want you to be ignorant about. And he and he says, So I gotta go into a Sunday school lesson here. And he says, Okay, for one thing, all our fathers were under the cloud and they passed through the sea and Baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea. Uh, Secondly, they did all eat the same spiritual meat, manna. And next in verse 4, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. See, I'm not even sure that's a a Bible type. 
mean, that just sounds too literal to be. It's like, was that rock a type of Christ? No, I think it was Christ. I mean, I think he's telling me the, the rock that followed them was Christ. Now, why is that so important? Well, if I step back and think about it for a second, as a Christian, as a Bible believer, as someone who is saved and born again, the only thing I have to do to be an overcomer is stand. I mean, literally, the only thing I have to do to win is stand. And when I look at Ephesians 6 and I see when I am armed with all of the armor, I have everything defensively to protect me so that I can stand. And I know I've, you know, heard people describe it to, well, you know, but the sword is your only offensive weapon. But if I'm told to stand, if I'm standing, then my sword is not an offensive weapon because I'm not attacking. My sword is also a defensive weapon mm -hmm. to protect me so that I can stand. Mm -hmm. So the key is standing. You know, I think there is not a time in your life when you cannot stand. Now, I know, I know you disagree, and there, there are times in my life when, when I would have vehemently disagreed that, no, I cannot stand. Um, so there are those times, whether through something like addiction, so it may, may not be substance abuse, it may be affair of the heart, it may be pride, it may be envy, it may be desire for power, it, any number of things. But because you have led yourself into temptation, you are now in a pit you cannot dig yourself out of. And, and yes, reasonably, it seems like you cannot stand. Well, the reason you cannot stand is because you left the rock. Hmm. And you can start standing again if you will just go back to the rock, I have got to have the rock to stand on. Otherwise, you're right. I can't stand. You're right. You can't stand. You're, but, but the reason you can't stand is you're not on the rock. Come back to the rock. Get on the rock and stand it. We have got to have the rock. Mm -hmm. I mean, we got to have the rock. So, okay, you know, here, here are the, some things I'm exercised about. If I, and let me approach it maybe differently than you, than you might think in terms of the doctrinal damage. Mm -hmm. So I think it's deeper than uh, any particular nuance of theology. We're going to pause right here for just a second so we can hear from one of our students from the Living Faith Bible Institute. My name is Dallas Slaughterdale III, man. I just want to give you guys a little bit of background of my story. 2016, I graduated from Moody, and Pastor Trotter was like, hey, we're about to start another semester in, in LFBI, man, why don't you hop on it? So I did, man. I learned more in those three classes than I did in two years enrolled in Moody. LFBI is what I was looking for back in 2014 when I enrolled in Moody. It has increased uh, my zeal for the Word of God and for the God of the Word. I really encourage anybody who is out there that is 
that is seeking God. This is the place where your excitement for the Word of God and again, for the God of the Word will increase. So hopefully I'll be seeing you guys soon. Take care. Visit LFBI.org to learn more about Living Faith Bible Institute. So poor Ahemplo. I don't know who Ahemplo is and why he's poor, but poor Ahemplo. <laughs> Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians 2.20. King James, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the, that's the rock. You know what? That's the rock which follows me. That, that's the rock that is always with me, enabling me so I can always stand. There's never a time I can't be an overcomer as long as I am, I am with the rock. So because I, am, because I have the cloud by day and the fire by night, as long as I follow the Holy Spirit, the rock is going to be following me. It's going to be there with me. Okay. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Now, did you see that in verse 20? Not if you are not using a King James Bible, you didn't. But my King James Version, which translates the Greek correctly, says that I live by the faith of the Son of God and not by my faith in Him. And that is an important distinction. So Tyndale... Tyndale says, I'm crucified with Christ. I live verily, yet now not I, but Christ liveth in me. For ye life, which I now live in ye flesh, I live by the faith of ye Son of God, which loved me and gave himself for me. Bishop's Bible, nevertheless, I live. Yet now not I, but Christ liveth in me. And ye life, which I now live in, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, which loved me and gave himself for me. Martin Luther once said, a Christian uses earthly means like any unbeliever. Outwardly, they look alike. Nevertheless, there's a great difference between them. I may live in the flesh, but I do not live after the flesh. I do my living now by the faith of the Son of God. That's from his commentary hmm. on this verse in Galatians. So it's not even by my faith in faith that saves me. And if you have a new King James Version, which is allegedly from the Texas Receptus, it, it does not say what the King James says, which correctly translates the Greek. It likewise says, you live by your faith, not his. If you have an NIV, if you have an ESV, it says you live by your faith, not his. And the Greek actually says, I live by the, by the Son of God's faith, by that faith of the Son of God. So modern translators and translations do not clarify, they do not make more accurate, they corrupt it, and then you don't understand. And you wonder why you can't stand you can't stand because you don't understand. 
and you don't understand because you had a rock that you walked away from. Mm-hmm. The reason they change it is because they, the translators do not understand what's being said. Since they don't understand it, they think you can't handle the truth, so they do not translate it according to truth because they don't have that experience of the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I checked their reverse interlinears, and they scrambled the Greek in their reverse interlinears in order to justify their translation. Oh, boo. I take their translation, translate it back into Greek. It doesn't say what the Greek actually says. So if you want to know that it is the last days, you don't need to look at the Mayan calendar. I'm just saying. Do not tell me about the blood moons. I do not care about planet Nabiru or the book of (laughs) Enoch. All you have to do is look at what they've done to your Bible. Mm -hmm. So let me give you another example. Ephesians chapter 3. And, you know, I feel like these words matter because this is the mystery of claiming your identity in Christ. So those are doctrines that matter to me. And yet they're the most subtle to pick out where... Changes have been made. Um, I mean, you can't even get your eternal identity until you give up the broken identity you were born in and trust in Christ's faithfulness, his finished work. It's not your faith in Christ. It is the faith of Christ operating for you. Right. So Ephesians 3 verse 12. In Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Okay, Galatians 2.20, every modern translation says you live by your faith in the Son of God, not his faith, even though that goes contrary to what the Greek actually says. So I wondered here at Ephesians 3.12, I thought surely, surely the modern translations did not have a conspiracy against translating the truth here like they did in Galatians 2.20. You know what I discovered? The ESV says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Hmm. And the NIV says, in him and through him, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And again, the New King James claims to be from the TR, which one, who knows? New King James says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Modern English version, also claiming to be from the TR, says, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Not a chance. My boldness and my confidence is because of his faith. My faith is too often unfaithful. Mm -hmm. I mean, you guys, the rest of you guys, you translators, you other guys putting out these other versions, you can say whatever you want to about yourself. But my faith is often unfaithful. His faith never is. Right. So, so I, ca- I catch faithful faith from his faithfulness. It is not my faith in him. It is by the faith of him. And, and after I understand that, then I love these words, boldness and confidence. Because my access to his spirit and its powerful expression 
is not subject to my faults and my failures and my frailties. I come to God because of Christ's faith. I have access to the Spirit by Christ's faith, and that is what overrules my fear. My faith's not in my faith in him. My faith's not in you. My faith's not in comparison to you. It's not even my own faith. My faith is in his faith overruling for me. Mm -hmm. And those are the type of changes that are so subtle under the radar. It's not typically what's brought out as, oh, you know, they left this out and they took out that and they changed this that way. And those are all significant things as well. But uh, no, this is just kind of obvious to me. Yeah, it underpins every nuance of Scripture, right? Like the very character of God is under threat with, with these changes that yes. seem, so, seem so very subtle. The average reader is sitting in the pew and they're reading or they're, they're doing their devotional and they say to themselves, yeah, of course, I, I have faith in him and it's through that faith that activates all of the powerful things that a Christian ought to have at their disposal, all of the peace and all the comfort and all the boldness and, and security. You know, my faith activates that. And they don't know that they're reading a half-truth. You know what I mean? They yeah, don't know yeah. that, that, that it's Christ's unconditional faith. Just as his love is unconditional, it's his unconditional faith towards us that inspires any faith that we have ever, have and, ever had. And the serpent knows that. Yeah. And the serpent knows that if I cannot trust God to give me his word in my language with certainty, then I can't trust God. Mm-hmm. So he makes me so I can't trust God. Mm-hmm. Because if I can't trust him to have given me his word correctly— for 280 years before all these others came along. If I can't trust that God did that, then I can't trust God. Mm -hmm. I have left my rock. I will not be able to stand, and I will blame it on God that I'm not standing. And that is the state of Christianity today. So two seeds, two lines of Bibles, two types of New Testament Greek texts, Therefore, in terms of changes affecting doctrine, they all take out 1 John 5, 7. They all ratchet the last half of Mark 16 in brackets. They all ratchet the first half of John 8 in brackets. Mm -hmm. They take out other words, verses, and parts of verses. John seven fifty three to 8, 11. The NIV has all of those verses in brackets. And then my NIV study Bible states, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have this. Okay. Then they say, this story was originally attached to another narrative. Blink, blink. Now, you know they made that up because there is no other narrative it's ever attached to in history that they can point to. They made that up. Hmm. ESV study Bible. There is considerable doubt that this story is part of John's original gospel. It seems best 
to view the story as something that probably happened during Jesus' ministry, but that was not originally part of what John wrote in his gospel. Therefore, it should not be considered as part of Scripture. At, at Mark 16, last half of Mark 16, verses 9 to 20, the NIV Study Bible note tells me, serious doubt exists as to whether these verses belong to the gospel of Mark. His gospel probably ended at 16, verse 8, or its original ending has been lost. All these Gnostic ideas then end up being propagated mm-hmm. by the modern versions. Um, my conclusion regarding the Old Testament would be the Masoretic text is the true Hebrew text because it represents the providential work of the Holy Spirit in guiding the Jews to preserve the oracles God gave them. And that, even though it is a messy text, I mean, in some ways it's a very mathematical text, uh, locked down to jot and tittle. And at the same time, in the Masorah, in those marginal context, comments, they also include the fact that, you know, we actually found it two different ways in the manuscripts. Okay, so they preserve both. Now, I think that's fine, because sometimes God is ambiguous for a reason. Mm-hmm. My conclusion on the New Testament, the traditional text, whether you call it Byzantine, Syrian, Eastern, Majority, Koine, Family 35, or Received text, is the true Greek text because it represents providential work of the Holy Spirit and guiding the priesthood of believers, it's kind of a scrambled text, which is all right, because there are no native Koine Greek speakers anyway. And so you see the process of what God was going to do. And, and then, I mean, English becomes the language of the world. And who would have thunk it? Um, so, so it's the true text. The, the TR is, but scrambled to the extent that you cannot set up a competing authority to what you have in your own language. I think this kind of connects to the next question I have, and that's this. People often point to this idea that the English, uh, saying that we have the Word of God preserved in English specifically to the exclusion of other translations, even in other languages, they perceive that as some form of ethnocentric ideology. What would our response be to that? Well, you know, I think that that is actually the reverse. So to come up with 200 competing translations in English is pretty ethnocentric. (laughs) I'm just saying. That's, That's a good point. So actually it's the reverse. Why? Because the coming of the King James Bible was not dissatisfaction with a previously completed product. The product wasn't completed until God said it was completed, and it's not my fault. He did. He's the one who had translators lay down their pens after 1611, except for what changes and refreshes they made to it in 1638 or 1739 or whenever. So, uh, okay, it was not dissatisfaction with a previously completed product. It was completion of a previously unfinished product. So since it was the only thing that was God's words in English for 280 years, from 1611 to 1881, 
then that means everything after it is dissatisfaction with what God gave. Mm. It is a discontent with what God gave us, a, which by then was then a completed product. Mm-hmm. So our view of translation is consistent with our views of creation, mm-hmm. inspiration, canonization, and the coming of King yeah. James Bible. Yeah. So why would you say that the text, the Greek text is a process of evolution we are no longer finished with if you believe in creation and not evolution? I mean, why would why do you you can't switch like that? Yeah, that that is um, cognitive dissonance. That is uh, you know inherent uh, inherently contradictory. Right. So creation, not evolution, accident, and the impersonal forces of natural selection, but creation, inspiration, not evolution, recension, lost and final rediscovery in a trash can on Mount Sinai. But inspiration, canonization, not evolution, church councils, and power plays for who was going to be called orthodox. But the priesthood of believers, saints closer to the original writings, identifying inspired books for us. Now, most evangelical pastors will, will even believe, believe that about, yeah, can, can, right. you know, because what else are you going to believe? Sure. It's the only thing that can be true. Okay, well, then just keep walking. The coming of the King James Version, not evolution, but God operating through the priesthood of believers in the same way he did for canonization. And yes, it was purified in a furnace of earth, just so happened seven times. And that is why all the modern versions changed that verse to refer to God's people and not God's word. But God utilized human instruments. He did it in inspiration not sending us a hermetically sealed package from outer space. God's sticking his finger in the dirt so that we were created in his divine image and did not evolve from lower life forces. Inspiration is unrepeatable in the sense that God has not continued to inspire his word today. What God did and how he did it was part of God's power. It was part of God's will. Mm-hmm. And I will point out that the process of transmission, preservation, and getting a translation also is compatible because it also did reach a spot at which it was complete. Mm. It reached a goal and it stopped. Mm -hmm. And eventually the complete mind of God for man was received in transmission. Men were the modems kind of downloading the text off of heavenly servers from the Holy Spirit to our human spirit. That's inspiration. The hard drive that recorded that data, we call the Bible. That's inscripturation. But what started with Wycliffe went through six printed revisions until 1604. And then the process, which went seven years, and there was a break in the middle, but I won't get into that. That process of printed revision stopped with number seven. And you either view history skeptically or believingly. Mm -hmm. You either have a faith-based view of the Bible or you do not. And if you view it believingly, you see what the Holy Spirit did. Yeah. So 
it's important. And it does come back to what you said. It's a, it's what we hold to is a faith based perspective. Um, meaning we, we take the basic assumptions that the Bible themselves present us with, and we adhere to them uh, believingly versus skeptically. And we, we, we recognize that our best intentions aren't actually good enough to make sure that the word gets to us the way that it should. Um, you know, I found this one quote. Soren Kierkegaard mm-hmm. is not known for being a fundamentalist. No. But in his book, Provocations, he says the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. Kierkegaard says this. Hmm. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you'll say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Well, herein lies the real place of Christian scholarship. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close. Hmm. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. Wow. There you go. That's it. And that is a, that's a fantastic summary of what we've been talking about. And uh, Alan, again, thank you. Uh, for making it plain, even when it's not plain, even when it's difficult. Um, but this is such a, an integral topic to who we are and our identity as the Living Faith Bible Institute and the Living Faith Fellowship at large. This does sit at the close center of what we believe and we hold to and, uh, and we value. And uh, we're going to continue to hold that line because the preservation of God's Word is too important and, and the surety and the certainty of his words is too important. If we're going to spend our lives studying it, we ought to know that we have the one that we can trust. Yes. So, Amen. Alan, thanks so much, man. I appreciate you. Praise the Lord. And we'll come back and talk about this stuff and so much more in, in the future. Always love having you on the show. And we want to thank you for joining us as well for this episode of The Postscript, uh, talking about the differences, the, the, the areas between translations that differ and affect our doctrines. And if that was compelling to you, again, we want to encourage you to consider taking the manuscript evidence class next semester in LFBI. Uh, there's so much he- here on this topic that Alan couldn't even touch. Uh, it's just the beginning. This is all just a primer uh, to so much more that he desires to teach you about why you can believe with absolute certainty that you hold the word of God in your hand when you hold a King James Bible. And so we want to invite you into that uh, so that you can learn more. We love you and we're so grateful for every moment that you spend with us week after week. that, you know, we just passed the threshold of, of 100 episodes. I think this is going to be episode 102. And so we're so grateful for your support. And, uh, and you mean so much to us. We do this because we want to 
build your faith and, and, uh, and encourage you as much as possible and you encourage us as well. We love you and we hope to see you again next week for another episode. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.